I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Today's episode has been sponsored by Serial Box. Serial Box delivers addictive book content in short listen or read installments designed to fit into today's fast-paced mobile lifestyle. Switch between listening and reading with a single click, picking up right where you left off. Learn more at SerialBox.com, S-E-R-I-A-L-B-O-X.com. I'm really excited to be here today with debut novelist Kate Hope Day. Kate is a former associate producer at HBO. A graduate of Bryn Mawr with a PhD in English from the University of Pittsburgh, she currently lives in Oregon with her husband and two children. Let's talk to Kate about her novel, If Then. So welcome, Kate. Thanks for coming on, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you so much for having me. This is delightful. Oh, so glad. So now's the time to tell people what your book is about. (laughs) You won't forget. (laughs) Hopefully I won't forget. So If Then is a novel about four neighbors who share a cul-de-sac in a fictional town in Oregon called Clearing. And it follows these four people as they're going about their lives. One of them, Ginny, is a surgeon, and she lives with her husband, Mark, and their 11-year-old son, Noah. And Mark is a wildlife biologist, and he studies how animal behavior can potentially predict natural disasters. Which was very interesting. I had yes. no idea. Is that true, by the way? Does that, that actually That is real happen? science. Wow. <laughs> and I can talk a little more okay. about that okay. later. Sorry, Sorry to interrupt. I, I know. Just, it's, it's a cool... Yeah. At first, I just made it up, and then I went <laughs> and looked, and there's some real science that's, awesome. that's so interesting. So they're in one house, and then in the other house is Cass, who's a new mother, and she's struggling to still maintain her work, which is being a philosophy scholar. And then in the other house is Samara, who has recently moved back home after her mother's death, and she is a sort of fledgling real estate agent. And those are the sort of four main characters. And so... They're going about their lives the way we all do, you know, trying to balance career, kids, friends, and then some strange things start happening. They begin to see visions that they don't entirely understand. And as the book unfolds, we begin to realize that they're seeing glimpses of an alternate reality, which is like their lives, but with some sort of startling differences. And that's my little well done. <laughs> that's summary a great synopsis. Of the book. <laughs> okay, you passed the test. <laughs> I didn't even have to look at it. All my right, hand. good. No notes needed. <laughs> well, the book was really interesting, and it lets you sort of think about like, what if, like, of course, with your title, but like, what if your life went in a different direction? Mm-hmm. You know, it's the whole sliding doors movie phenomenon, which is like one of my favorite movies, because you always think like these little things in our lives. What yeah. if I had done this or that? Like, what inspired you to what inspired you to write this? I mean, to start off, I think it's a universal thing, and I think we all have those things in our minds, Mm -hmm. these sort of, like, imagined or ghost lives, like, if I had taken a different job or had married someone else or if I had had one more kid. That's a perpetual one for me. It's sort of like, well, what if I'd had girls? I have Mm -hmm. two boys. What if I'd had a third child? But to say a little bit more, I mean, be more specific, the book really grew out of 
sort of two forks in the road for me, which were having my first baby and then moving to Oregon right after I graduated from my PhD program. And so I was in this very strange space of not working for the first time in my life, being home with a new baby. And my husband was working long hours because it was his first job out of residency. And so I was quite isolated the way my character Cass is. And I definitely thought a lot about (laughs) my old life. And I, I sort of The book started, I think the sort of emotional impulse behind the book was just just trying to understand this feeling of being split in two when you have a baby. And I think of that in terms of both like linear time, you were a person before and then you're a person after, and there's some differences there and it's hard to hold on to who you were before Mm -hmm. you had kids, but also just this perpetual, and this never goes away, right? this perpetual needing to be in two places at once. Yes. You know, you want to be with them, but you also want to do whatever it is that your passion is. For me, it was like making things, telling stories. And so that was sort of the emotional impulse behind it. But I will say, you know, this in the soup of ideas where the book came from, I also had been studying the philosophy of counterfactuals in graduate school. And so I had some of those ideas in my head, this idea of this particular philosopher, David Lewis, who is the real-life inspiration for Robert Kells in the book. Mm-hmm. He wrote several books where he posited that any counterfactual statement that you make, any if-then statement or scenario that you can pose actually exists in the multiverse. So if you can pose a yeah. scenario in which you did the other thing that you right. always thought maybe you you could have done. Right. You know, that if you I had a, worked out this morning. Yes, I might, I might be feeling I more fit right if now. If I had not <laughs> drank so much coffee, <laughs> I would not be so jittery. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And you know, that you exists because there's a multiplicity of realities. So I had that so so there was so there was sort of the emotional impulse behind the book and the kind of intellectual ideas that I kind of picked up on. And those two things came together, and it started with Cass, and then I kind of looked right, and Ginny and Mark were in the house next door, and I Mm -hmm. looked left, and Samara was in the house to the left. There you go. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about Cass a little, because she was was one of my favorites, because I just so related to her, you know, stuck in the car and sending desperate texts to her, Mm. her husband, who was far away, and just having the baby. I mean, I started with twins, but just having your life sort of be enveloped by kid dumb after yeah. being a normal functioning member of yes. society. <laughs> a person that can like have yeah. a conversation. Exactly. And like finish the thought. Yes. And wears clothes. Yes. I feel like <laughs> I'm takes barely showers. in that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you, and you mentioned this a minute ago, but you had this great quote in the book about Cass and you said, her life is much smaller since she had Leah and less free, but it's also much more than it was all at once, all at the same time. She has to be more than one thing now. She has to be two, three, four. It seemed impossible at first, but now maybe it's not. So I feel like you added a little bit of hope in that moment. Do you want readers to feel hopeful that this time will pass? I mean, I think it's it's not, it's definitely like that time will pass and it does. And what's so strange about reading this book out loud is that when I wrote it, I was like, 
Cass is me. Like, mm-hmm. that was true. I mean, so authentically, like, just came out of me in that moment. And that's where I was when I was writing the book. But now I read it, and my kids are more— How old are your kids School now? age. They're eight and just turned five. So I have one kid that's still in preschool, but he goes to school, you know, preschool, and he has, like, hours yeah. away from me. It's not that sort of, like— physical, mm-hmm. nursing, right. you know, where they're always on you. So on the one hand, I think it passes and it, it becomes something else. But I also think you get better at it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you sort of say, oh, I can't do this. I can't do this. And then you realize, no, I actually, no, I don't have four arms, but I sort of metaphorically have four arms. Like right. you just figure out how to be in two places at once in a way and little, you know, workarounds and then other people in your life step up and, you know, you adapt and then you, you and, you know, if you're lucky enough to have a partner to do it with, then the two of you, like you, you do, you get better at it. And I mean, I managed to write this book. So impressive. (laughs) So So you did it. (laughs) I think there is a way to hold on to the parts of yourself that are most important. I also think part of it is letting go of things that can be let go of. Like when people ask me, well, how did you write this book? Mm -hmm. And I I try to be honest because I don't want it to seem like magical. I gave up a lot. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of things I don't do. I don't I have no, like, I don't keep an organized record of my kids' photographs. I, you know, a lot of the things that other moms I know do at night, they call, like, a good friend on the phone. I don't really do that anymore, you know? I'll send texts. I try to stay in touch with friends. But, you know, I don't have hobbies. I have my kids and I have writing. And that's totally fine for me. And that's not necessarily a choice everyone wants to make. But part of it is, like, figuring out, like, what are the things that I just, I have to do? Mm -hmm. Obviously, loving your kids and being with them is something you have to do. But what's that, like, other thing? You know, for some people, it's like riding their horse or, you know. But for me, it's like I have to write. I have to, like, tell stories. So just, I, I can sort of shed the other, I mean, my house is not very organized. That's okay. <laughs> the confessions come out. We're just digging in. Um, you know, my car is mess usually, but that's okay. I see, you know, I look around and I'm like, this is not what I would want, but that book exists. Yeah, exactly. You should get one of those cars where, you know, like the buses where you have like wraparound decals. Oh, you yeah. should just like put that on the outside of your car and anybody who says anything is like, like, no, this is like, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you, you had this line, by the way, and I was like, I have a feeling that the author just felt this way herself <laughs> when you wrote it. It goes, probably. Cat thought she would be okay to leave. She wants to leave to get back to the notes she just typed. She's going to leave. She's shouldering her laptop back. She's waving goodbye. She's leaving. She's doing it, but it feels awful. Will it feel this awful every time? This is when Cass was like trying to leave to go to work. Yeah. And I was like, how great to have a job where you can then just sit and sort of reflect on the fact that you had to leave to go to your job. <laughs> you know? Yes. It's like kind of like this. That's true. Anyway, I thought it was, I just love that. Anyway, you also, Samara, the neighbor, you wrote really movingly about the loss of her mother and how she mm-hmm. was working through that, which is sort of like another part of motherhood, sort of the being the daughter and then seeing that relationship. Sort of like, anyway, and when her dad was starting to give away some of her mom's possessions, the daughter, Samara, was sort of like, don't do that. And she thought maybe he was secretly thrilled about it. And then you wrote this line, which I just, like, starred because I just loved it. His face sags, and 
The dad says, I'd carry every object in this house on my back if it meant I could have one more day with your mother. Oh, I know. It gets me too, and I write. Right? <laughs> you're so <laughs> The two of them together, I just find, yeah. Yeah. Did that come from a place in your own life? Where did that come from? Yeah, I mean, I think things are hard, especially things that belong to someone that's gone, or even you know, things that belong to someone that and your relationship with that person has changed. Mm-hmm. They're like weighted in a way. And I did, you know, I've witnessed like the struggle that my mom and my uncle have had with my Nana's things. Sort of, it's not, it's a lot of stuff and it's a house full of things that she loved and you don't want to sell it and you don't want to give it away, but it has to go somewhere at mm-hmm. some point. And I think there's such a craze right now, right, for reducing stuff, mm-hmm. which I think is great. But I think sometimes in that conversation, some of like the meaning behind things generationally gets lost in some of that conversation, mm-hmm. especially since like I'm just a couple generations from like Italian immigrants coming on a boat. And so for my Nana, like a lot of those beautiful things that she had, and it wasn't, you know, anything that was worth all that much, but it meant a lot to her and they, you know, were, were chosen with care. And mm-hmm. um, those things meant that like she had made it, you know, and she was an American. And so it's sort of like, if you give all that stuff away, do you lose that, you know, sense of history and the connection to her? And I think it's the same thing. And and Samara's like really in it because her mom has just died. Right. Yeah. And it's sort of like, how can you shed, you know, the stuff that is for Samara, her. Right. But as the book unfolds, you realize that you start to find out that the dad and her mom had this whole other plan and they were going to have another life. And he's sort of has more allegiance to that. So it's sort of like these competing ideas of the people that we love. She has one idea of her mom and her father has another. And it's in a way, we all have different realities like all the time, right? Because... I'm one way with my mom and one way with my husband, you know? <laughs> so we're all, we always have like sort of competing selves. Yeah. Yeah. My son is often better behaved, not around me. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I'm just going to cling to the fact that other moms say he's really polite when he goes over oh, for yeah. dinner. Because like, you know, uh-huh. I'm like, it's, it's not I know. What it's so, so anyway. interesting. Yeah. It's sort of like, I'm yeah. like, as long as he has another side. Right. There's another side. <laughs> and I've done part of my job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have one kid that's, a bit of a challenge at home, but then at school, his teachers tell me he's just the best listener. Mm-hmm. And I say, really? <laughs> <laughs> That's so interesting. <laughs> I've had some surprising conferences over the years. <laughs> I'll stop at that. <laughs> so, another one of your central characters is Mark, who's married to Ginny, and they end up having these marital issues throughout the book. And Mark has this sort of single-minded focus on basically managing his anxiety by fortifying himself in some way. So mm-hmm. making a bunker or whatever. I don't want to give anything away, but just his you know emergency preparation goes to extremes. And I wanted to know how you saw that sort of playing into their relationship. Did that cause the demise or is it just sort of, were they just on different pages or? Yeah. I mean, I think... With Mark, it's sort of, I think, this very human impulse to want to try to protect the people that you love, you know, your your spouse, your kids. And he's got this personality where he wants to try to control 
things and even things that probably like really can't be controlled. Mm -hmm. But his wife is in the medical field. And I know from being married to someone that's in a medical field that they sort of have a different attitude about like bad luck Mm -hmm. and accidents. And it's not so much that you could, they just don't believe that you can completely avoid it. It's sort of like you, it's not like if something bad's going to happen to you, it's like when, and hopefully it won't be really bad. And part, like the most important thing is like figuring out how to live through it. And they just have that, that's sort of like the, the ER doctor, surgeon mm-hmm. sort of attitude that you just kind of grin and bear it and you move through it. And I think Mark is in some way more like me where I'm kind of like running interference, <laughs> trying to keep the bad luck at bay. Right. And I think that, In fairness to my husband, and I think this is so relevant for kids too, yes, you can try to protect yourself, but from bad things happening to you, whether it's like an earthquake or something much smaller, but it really sort of walls you off from some like maybe scary, but also like incredibly rewarding experiences. And it's, it goes, it's the same thing with kids, right? You want to protect them, but then you also want them to experience the world. And so, and part of experience the world is there's always some danger involved. So I think, you know, I'm not sure I totally can tell you I think their marriage split up for this reason. But to me, like, that's the tension between the two of them, and they haven't really been able to understand each other Mm -hmm. in that way. And I think they each sort of have started to live separately in a way in their own minds Mm -hmm. and aren't able to communicate in a way that the other person sort of gets what's preoccupying them. I thought you did also such a great job of depicting a couple in the midst of sort of having the doctorhood be another part of their marriage. Oh, yeah. Like, I haven't been ever in a relationship with somebody in the medical field. And just even hearing, like, what it's like at night or the exhaustion or, you know, when you have to go in and sort of the double life even of being a doctor in such an intense environment. I always wonder when I go to a hospital or, like, how do people, you know. They don't belong to you 100% ever. And, you know, I think I went into it knowing that and because I met my husband when he was in medical school. So it was like I I truly knew what I was signing up for because we were together for a long time before we got married. And he had me watch this truly horrifying documentary about Harvard doctors and how they all get divorced. Oh, no. (laughs) Just as a kind of like, listen, it's not going to be super easy. Well, that's interesting. But, yeah, luckily that did not happen. (laughs) Like, they sort of couldn't get through residency without splitting up. And that is, like, it's tough. Mm. But I think you have to, you know— just be okay with the fact that it's someone who has cancer is going to sometimes go ahead of you. Right. And sometimes, you know, that wears on you, but most of the time it's it's such a rewarding yeah. career for him that, you know, uh, that outweighs right. the middle of the night yeah. stuff. <laughs> yeah. It's not like he's up, you know, working on a PowerPoint presentation or something. No. You know what I mean? Or like an no. Excel model it's, or something. It's like, you right. know, saving someone's life is yes. like a little bit. And yeah. his patients are... You know, just so wonderful and grateful and, yeah. That's great. Just constantly bringing him gifts. Aww. <laughs> so, like, I'll be here for the brownies. <laughs> I can't be mad at them yeah. for calling in the middle of the night. 
So tell me a little more about your process. You, I read somewhere that you had a Google calendar that you kept for each character so yeah. that you could keep their timeline straight. That's intense. Yeah. That's- so I'll say a little bit about some of the things I did with If Then, and then maybe I'll say a little bit more about my process generally because I just okay. finished my second oh, book. Oh, congratulations. And I mean, If Then, I hadn't ever written fiction before, so there was a lot of trial and error And it took me a while because I was teaching myself how to do things like dialogue. Mm -hmm. How did you do that? Character art. Did you like Google it or you tried it? (laughs) Do you take a class? I know I'm joking around, but you just tried it. I experimented. I read novels for seven years in graduate school. And one of the things that I studied was narrative structure. And I used to work with my students a lot. Like we would plot Pride and Prejudice on the board. So, I mean, that was... That, mm-hmm. that was, like, already part of my DNA. And yep. so some things you just, you know, like, you might not know how to do it, but you know when you're not doing it, like, mm-hmm. well. <laughs> <laughs> because you can sense, like, what it should be, and you just have to, like, butt in chair, keep, you know, just keep working, keep writing that scene, or write a different one and then come back to it. But... I did take some classes. I mean, I would say the the best thing I ever did was find a, my wonderful critique group, which is like seven years going, and they don't lie to me. Like if something's not working, they say. And at first, I, most of us really didn't know what we were doing, but now we've like another member has been published actually by my same imprint. Huh. But they've always been extremely sort of astute with like this this particular thing isn't working. So I did that, and I did some conferences like Tin House and Squaw Valley. But mostly I just read, kept reading all the things, things I don't like, things I do like, <laughs> like things that are, I mean, I'm, I was trained as a Victorianist, so I still go back to those books all the time, things that are coming out now. But, oh, back to the Google calendars. Oh, yes, please. <laughs> Sure, yeah. So if then was unique in the sense that there were four points of view and then they were seeing, you know, other versions of themselves. So technically there were eight timelines I needed to keep track of. And I also, my editor and I did some work to make sure that there was some real specific continuity across the points of view. And one of the things we did was make sure that the weather lined up in a very precise way. And so I had a Google calendar for each character, and then I had a weather, and I'd make sure that it, so there's a hailstorm at one point. Right. I need to make sure that that's happening <laughs> at the right time when you switch into another point of view. So, yeah, I had a lot of tricks with that book to keep track of the different points of view and the different glimpses they were seeing into another reality. But I'll say more generally, the way I like to work is I will write very freely for, and this is sort of how my second novel came about, like write very freely for about 30,000 words to get a sense of voice, main characters, like the world, and I don't edit. 
Mm-hmm. Like, it's just what it is. And it's probably not very good, but I don't worry about that. And then I'll go back and I'll start really thinking about structure. So I do a lot of visual things. Like, I have plot charts. I have character arc charts. I'll do, like, a thematic chart. And once I have some visual of what I think the book should look like in terms of, like, how the characters develop or they change or what are the major plot points or thematically how do we go from sort of one idea to, you know, where you're supposed to end up at the end of the book. Then I'll go back and I'll try to make those 30,000 words into something, like, that's actual scenes. And then I try to write through to the end, but I'm always like redoing my plot charts. Okay. <laughs> like I'm always going back, I'm just a visual person that way. So I'll have them like right here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're at your desk. Yeah, at my and, bulletin board. Yes. And I would, I'll have like a chart of what the book should look like structurally. And so I'm always sort of like referencing that to make sure like, have I gotten to the midpoint? Is something happening in the midpoint? Are characters changing? All those things. Very yeah. cool. <laughs> what Can you say what your next book is about? Yeah. So I just finished it in the sense that I gave it to my agent. And it's also going to be forthcoming from Random House. Oh, exciting. Yes, with my same yeah. editor. So I'm pretty oh, great. thrilled about that. So it is an imaginative retelling of Jane Eyre Ooh. set in the near future. So cool. And my agent calls it the a book about uh, the ultimate STEM girl. STEM huh. as in, yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's sometimes I call it Jane Eyre meets the Martian. It's been really fun to write. It's very different from my first book, but it has some commonalities in the sense that it's there's a character in it that's trying to figure things out in the same way that Cass is trying to figure something out. And I've gotten to learn about things like fuel cells. Just like for the first book, I learned about frogs. You never <laughs> so know I love that stuff. Where your novel will take <laughs> no, you, I you guess. <laughs> so what after this? Are you are you gonna do another book? Are you is it too early to say? I know you already have so much. In progress. I have an idea for my third book in my mind. The way it's worked for me is like characters sort of take up residence in my mind. And before I ever, like for about six months to a year before I ever write a word. And if they stick around that long, then I know that has to be the book. So my retelling of Jane Eyre was like that. It was, I didn't let myself write anything because I was going to finish if then. Uh (laughs) But then once... I guess I hadn't finished it then. Seriously. I, then I could have written the Jane right. Eyre book. I kept wanting to like switch to something else, but I have a great member of my critique group who was like, you have to finish it. Otherwise, you, when you get to that part of the next book, you won't know how to do that part, like the end part or right. the final edits. And so I'm, I'm very glad I took her advice on that. So yeah, I'm excited about That's that good. book. What advice would you give to someone just starting out? I've been thinking about that quite a bit because I was just at Bryn Mawr College and there were a lot of undergraduate writers. And I mean, I think of myself as starting from very little 
six years ago when I started this book, but I had an academic background. I had work experience, life experience. I've had kids. And they're like really at the start and sort of what are the most important things. And I mean, I think I've mentioned them. You need to read a million books and know, you know, what you like in terms of, you know, on the page, at the sentence level. Do you like writing that's layered? Do you like more clean, spare writing? But also like, what are the stories that you can't stop talking about? You know, what do they do? Are they about, for me, they're often about characters trying to figure something out or, you know, anything that you just can't get out of your mind. You should probably read that book multiple times. And that's my other thing I like to say is I feel like rereading has been the best thing I've ever done for my writing Hmm. because that you reread things that you love and sometimes it's not, maybe it's not like the best book, like, you know, the highest literature. I'm not necessarily talking about that. I think that's great too, but a book that's like under your skin and you don't know why, I think if you read those books they just sort of become part of your DNA. And once you like sit down to start working yourself, those books are like in you and you don't need, it's not a craft lesson. It's just like part of you at that point. And it comes out just like the movie Sliding Doors. Mm-hmm. It's <laughs> yep. just part of me Yeah, because I've watched it so many times. I don't think I really thought I'm going to write a book that's in that vein, but that book, I mean, that movie was like, just hanging around in my brain (laughs) because I'd watched it so many times. And then the other thing I would say is just, it's amazing, you know, what can happen if you just sit, (laughs) sit down and you keep at it. You will get better. So butt in chair is kind of like the (laughs) the best advice. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much for coming on. Most don't have time to read books. It was so much fun chatting with you and Wishing you all the best. I can't wait to read the next one. Thank you. Awesome. So glad to be here. <laughs> Today's episode was sponsored by Serial Box. S-E-R-I-A-L-B-O-X.com. Serialbox.com, delivering addictive book content in short listen or read installments. Thanks to Ryan and Steve at Texture Sound for the audio editing and mixing. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Mm-hmm.